Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition on Thursday, as we do every week on the podcast, the long form interview. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Adam Stenko is out West. Earl Watson joins us today. The former Suns head coach spent 13 years in the NBA as a point guard, second round pick 01 by the Seattle Supersonics, a captain after spending four years at UCLA. Earl, let's start with Kobe. Given that you were at UCLA, and maybe even goes back to high school. But you're at UCLA when he's starting out with the Lakers. Where did your relationship start? Our relationship started on campus. Um, Baron Davis and I came in as freshmen at UCLA in 1997. Kobe had just finished his, his rookie year, and he was going into like this. It was right after the slump of the Utah Jazz, like air balls. So he had turned his entire focus and dedication to being better all summer. It was like a, a, a mad genius on a mission. And Baron Davis and I would be walking to class literally about 7.15 in the morning. And we would see Kobe entering the Wooden Center, which is, you know, a training facility on campus next to Pauley Pavilion around 7.30. Because it takes time to get to class. It's a big campus. And we'd be like, what's up, Cole? We speak. Always check to see if he was playing pickup at three with the legendary runs, which was, you know, which say is Rico's runs. He brought it back. And Kobe be like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to play later. I'll see y'all later. He'd walk into the gym with his trainer. We'd be going to class. And we saw him religiously Monday through Friday. We would get out of class about 2.15, be running past the Wooden Center. He would just be leaving the Wooden Center at 2.30. And mm-hmm. Baron and I look at each other and be like, damn. <laughs> like, <laughs> Kobe, you going to play at 3? But like, yeah, I'm going to go get something to eat and drink real quick. I'll be there at 3. And he had come play at three. And then the games would last from three to five thirty. And at that time you had everyone, the entire Lakers team, because they were on a mission to get better throughout the summer to compete for the Western Championship. You have, you know, Shaq in there, you have Derek Fisher, you have uh the entire Robert Ory, the entire roster, Rick Fox, and you have the young Clippers with, you know, like, you know, you know, just the young Clipper days and it would continue to grow throughout the years when Lamar and Kenyon Dooling and Darius Miles entered the league later throughout the you know next four years, but his dedication, he would stay after the pickup games and shoot again, but he was consecutively there every time, consistently. He was focused, he was driven, he dominated the games in his three courts. It's a winner court, a loser court, and the last court, he would dominate the games and he just continued to grow in front of our eyes. Earl, what was the what was the Kobe trash talk like during those games? Uh, this is one great Kobe moment that I love. It was um, later on, early in my, I believe, early in my NBA career. And I played a year round. I wasn't good enough to ever take time off. So I always hunt games down at the at the men's gym at UCLA. And it was when Jay Kidd, Paul Pierce, and Kobe were preparing for Team USA. And um, I don't know if Paul was on that team, but I know he Paul was a gym rat. But I know J.K. and Kobe was for sure. So we played pickup. It was only two courts at that time because a lot of guys don't play year-round. And Kobe specifically wanted a team full of non-NBA players, you know, four of the guys on his team. And I never understood why. I just thought he was so competitive. He didn't want to dominate the game without a challenge. So I'm on a team with Paul. I think uh, J.K. had his own team. And so we beat Kobe and, you know, on the, on the winner's court, 
and Kobe was walking off to the losers' court, and Paul Pierce, you know, trash talk is always you always it's part of the beauty of basketball. It's nothing personal, it's just kind of and it's like the the nuance of the game. And, and Paul yelled to Kobe, like to the losers' court, and was like kind of laughing, and Kobe kind of chuckled and turned around. And he said, every court I go to is the winner's court. Watch how everyone follow. So when he said that, he meant the entire student body and basketball fanatics who would just show up to the gym and crowd the courts just to see us hoop. And as he said that, the entire crowd just flooded to the last court. I was like, damn. Like, <laughs> like it, was just a, it was a great Kobe moment. Like, you know, it was just a great Kobe moment. And, um, he was always intense, passionate. Uh, he would challenge you mentally with his words and physicality, but he always did it just to raise the level intensity of the games. When did you start to get to know him as a person? Uh, you know, Kobe's unique. He pick and chooses who he lets into his, his circle and his defense down. And because he's seen me in the gym so much, he will open up and talk to me. I remember one time I was walking through Westwood uh, with one of my best friends and you know Kobe had on a hoodie and we literally passed each other I didn't notice it was him and then as I passed him he just turned around and yelled my name like Earl and you know waved me over and we just talked you know we just talked and it was like it's it's a Kobe moment you know but either Kobe's gonna Kobe chooses who, to, who he chooses you as an intimate friend at night and for me it was always so respectful and he always had so many people in his life and so many things going. I never wanted to force myself in any further. I wanted to be organic when we saw each other, be mutual. And those are always the best friendships when you never ask that person of anything. It's just a natural energy that aligns when you, you know, collide universes. Earl, you know, you and I spoke last week, I think we, we were talking about Kobe moments and you had said something to me that that stuck out and and Noah and I both being from uh southeastern PA Philly area uh deeply connected with Kobe and 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 all that he's accomplished and all you and I spoke about the idea of superstars they're addicted to the work can you explain what you meant by by that um every professional athlete and i think everyone in general we all have it's a human nature to have addiction you know some people addiction is sunday morning religion is football some people are spirituality some people are you know the negatives drugs and alcohol and some people have a mix of a lot but every professional athlete has an addiction to the game there kobe used the word obsess obsessive he loves that you know kobe was obsessive he had an obsession to the game where most people were just addicted to the game. And his obsession was 24-7. Um, just the stories of Team USA when Kevin Durant and, you know, them was on the, you know, the teams were trying to make the team. You had a young, you know, LeBron and young D-Wade and how they were just marvel at the way even during the summer he would get to the gym for the Olympic team. He would get there at 3, 4 in the morning and get his workout in and then practice. Uh, Ronnie Price, my teammate in Utah, and who I coached in Phoenix, told me when he played with the Lakers, Kobe had told him, you know, let's get a workout in tomorrow morning before practice at 6 a.m. He said, so they met at a local high school. He said that when they went into the gym, um, he walked in and realized there was no basketballs. 
And he looked around. He was, okay, so I'm assuming someone's going to bring a ball. So Kobe's there. He's ready to go. Kobe's like, let's go. He was like, if we don't have any basketballs. He said, oh, we're not doing offensive work. We're just doing defensive slides for two hours, like all <laughs> defensive drills. And that's what they did. And that's the obsession. Like his mind studied everything about the game. And he always searched for life clues, uh, visual content, uh, physical um mental health and like, you know, the right nutrition angles to get so much advantage into his obsession to always deliver an amazing product when he touched the court and to be one of the greats to ever play. When you were coaching, and I know I know you've talked about the you know, Devin Booker and Kobe Bryant, were there were there any guys that when you were coaching that you know that Kobe truly took under his wing or or had a profound impact on? Um, not, not, not on my team, but Kobe was always, um, great mentors for the young kids in LA from the Russell Westbrooks to the James Harden, DeMar DeRozans. He always took a special liking to LA kids, even, you know, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, he always, you know, offered that mentorship. And as he retired, he became an ambassador to the entire game, women, and man, he made it genderless who he helped him, you know, inspired um, a great Devin Booker story. It's like Kobe was it never playing like the first two or three games he didn't play. And so he it had came out that Kobe decided to play the last game versus West Coast teams at home, at their home, so he can play in every arena, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's the night before the game and Devin Booker is texting me like at one in the morning. He's like, I can't sleep, man. I'm just so excited. I'm so excited. I'm like, yo, get some sleep, man. It's a big game tomorrow. Uh, you know, I'm coaching Phoenix. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that far removed from reality. If I lose this game, I could get fired just for losing to the Lakers. That's how it works. So like, dude, get some sleep. I need you. It's like, I have you and like three G league players. We have to be where we have to be ready to go. So he gets to sleep. He comes in to shoot around. Book is so excited. And he was like, you think he's playing? I was like, yeah, I think he's playing. He's like, man, I'm so excited, man. I remember he was just like a nervous excitement. And um, it was it was so funny. In front of our bench, Devin catches it in the mid post. Kobe's defending him. And Devin tried to hit him with his own move. And Kobe blocked it. And it was like something like, you know, what the hell you think you're doing? That's my fucking move. <laughs> and he's like, low-key, he low-key laughing, feeling disrespected at Devin. His face turned red. And I think it was the greatest moment in Devin Booker's life. Like, even though he blocked it, you could just see it coming, like the rocker fadeaway move. And he was like, so after the game, I actually posted the video. Um, Kobe has already always had this amazing mutual respect for each other. After the game, when I hugged him and talked to him, it was like, you know, man, I love you like a big bro. You always been there. And I, I asked one favor. And he was like, what is that? I was like, let me send Devin Booker down to the to your locker room at the end of the game and get your number. So you, he needs you in his life to be successful. Like, there's only so much I can give him, right? But you can give him that 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 next level mentality and it's coming from you is going to change his life. And I was like, yeah, send him down. I was like, cool, man, I see you throughout the summer and off season. And like, you know, literally I sent Devin down there. And um, a year to that date, well, when he went down there, 
he signed Devin's shoes and it said be legendary. And a year to that date, it was literally the next day in Boston before the game. It was a day later, a year and a day later. I went to Dev before the game. I was like, be legendary. Because what I knew was that he Dev always celebrated that moment. And that's the same game Devin has 70 in Boston. Can't make Incredible. that stuff up. Incredible. When was the last time you saw him? I haven't seen Cole probably throughout the summer. Just this, this, this is what I tried to explain to a reporter yesterday. I said, Kobe Bryant was the most um, strategically uh, visual superstar we've ever had in my era. Um, a lot similar to Jordan, where when he played, you saw him when he wanted you to see him. Post-career, Kobe put his family in the forefront, his children in the forefront, because as professional athletes, we sacrifice so much of that that it kills your heart on the inside. And it would be like Michael Jordan doing our younger era, retiring from basketball, opening up a facility in Chicago that created programs for kids for training and you know, um, leagues and tournaments, but Michael Jordan is coaching his son's teams there. Right. Like, think about that. Global universal mega superstar. Now the head coach in coaching or assisting his daughter's basketball teams and you knew where to find him every weekend. That is unheard of. So seeing him around the kids, Seeing him like in his element with, with, with children, young women, just lifting the game of, of women basketball and going to UCLA games, women basketball games, and then seeing him in the front row with Gigi talking the game at the Lakers games. And the, the, the funniest thing to me that was so beautifully unique is that he would take the pictures of Gigi with her favorite stars, not knowing that her favorite star's favorite star was her daddy. That's crazy. Yeah. It's like he was like angling it and getting all the angles and taking the pictures for a superstar who people question humility. Right? Kobe displayed the highest purpose of humility and created it organically through his dedication and just time to youth sports through his daughter. We'll get more stories from Earl in a moment, but the Super Bowl is here. NBA in full swing, college troops also. Time to get off the sideline, get in on all this action with my bookie. If you're tired of watching games from the couch and you're thinking, aside from just this type of entertainment, what else can I get out of this? Well, then my bookie wants to get your mind off everything else and get back in that game. If you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway, all the way up to a thousand bucks. So that means if you deposit two grand, you'll get an extra thousand dollars in free money to play with. Just use the promo code Locked On NBA. Locked On NBA. That activates the offer. Promo code Locked On NBA to take advantage of MyBookie's generous sign-up offer. MyBookie.ag. Visit MyBookie.ag today. You play, you win, you get paid. It's weird, Earl, because we could spend all day talking about Kobe, and we all are trying to figure out in the basketball community you know, what to do with all this and process thoughts and, and memories and all that. I, I want to ask you some questions about, about you personally. And, and I think it leads right into it because you talk about dedication, you talk about humility, you talk about the work ethic. 
your relationship with John Wooden at UCLA. Can you describe what, what your relationship was like and the kind of advice that, that he would offer up to you? Uh, my four years at UCLA was basketball heaven. Um, my first day on campus, I met Coach Wooden in the basketball office, the man basketball office, and he gave me his number. He told me to call him if I ever needed to talk. And I took the number, and it took me a while to actually call him because it's like maybe this is something he just says to everyone, right? I yeah. just stepped off a plane from Kansas. Here I am on campus, <laughs> and Coach Wooden is giving me his house number. His cell phones were like, if you had a cell phone, you were like just unique at that time, right? Here Coach Wooden is giving me his house number to call him to come and visit him. Like, what the hell is going on? Got to like make sure I was still alive. And then I left the basketball office and went into Pauley Pavilion and Magic Johnson was running pickup games and told me to start coming at 9 a.m. So that was my first two hours on UCLA <laughs> campus. It was basketball heaven from that point on. So here I am developing a relationship with Coach Wooden, visiting him, you know, on campus every time he was signing autographs or speaking to other teams or speaking to our team. I would take time to talk to him privately. Then I ended up visiting him in his condo in Encino. And I'm always chasing down, like, how to be better, how to be great, how to be a better basketball player. And every time I left, he told me how to be a better human, um, how to love bigger, vulnerable, be a better leader, how basketball is such a small part of your life, which Kobe has just extremely displayed in the most sacrificial way of losing his life and everyone involved, that basketball is such a small element in life. And then he will wink at me, and I don't know how he did this. I'm still trying to figure it out. He just taught me through that whole conversation of poetry, love letters to his wife, um, how to be a better person, uh, insightful knowledge on, um, you know, how much Bill Walton got on his nerves. And then at the end of it, I somehow knew how to break a two-two-one press. I'm like, what did he just do to me? Like, like, like Jedi mind tricks, right? And it, it was just such an amazing thing, man. And Coach Wooden, um. I remember like when it would be a timeout, good or bad, I would always glance behind the bench to see if he gave me a nod. And if it was a great, you know, run we did and very fundamentally sound, he would give me a nod in the wing. If it was a run that we had and I threw the ball off the backboard to Barron for a dunk or between the legs, you know, to Jelani McCoy or Dan Gazurich for a dunk or a lob, he would look at me and shake his head. <laughs> he hated, he hated and it was like, I'm like 18, 19, 21. He hated the fact that I did those things. And it was like, I would just kind of put my head down and try to hide in the huddle. <laughs> Earl, Earl, you also told me about how he said to you that, <laughs> that you couldn't start on his team. Yeah, I mean, we, we have these amazing talks and conversations you know, I was coming in L.A., you know, just, you know, behind the back passes, between the legs, throw it up off the backboard at Barron, throw lobs at Gerard Rush. And then I always seek him, like, yo, how can we be a better team, coach? And he would, you know, he would start with a story. He was very soft-spoken. Um, it's like your greatest, the, the greatest version of a grandfather you could have. Uh, all my grandparents died when I was early, so he kind of took that that role for me. And he would be like, you know, Earl, um, 
you could have played for some of my teams. I was like, oh man, this is so, I could have been on the championship team. This is amazing, right? Because I only went to UCLA because of Lucius Allen was from my neighborhood. So that's the only reason why I went. My dad brainwashed me at a young age. That was the only choice, even in Kansas. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, this is so amazing, right? He's like, yeah, you could have played. He said, but you wouldn't have got any playing time. I said, coach, <laughs> what? what? I'm like, like yo, wait. like coach, I mean, I would have said the bitch. Why? He said, because you don't know how to pass properly. <laughs> he was like, they're between the legs, they're behind the back. How many points do those give you? I said, uh, two, most likely, or three. He said, exactly. The same as a regular chest pass, a nice jump stop with a bounce pass. Same amount of points, bro. I'm like, <laughs> what, what am I supposed to say? Like, I, did I get back in the game on Thursday and do exactly what he told me I wasn't supposed to do? And here I go to the bench again, and he's shaking his head. So if he was saying that about you, what was he saying about Barron? Uh, at that point, I just thought he felt like Barron was too out of control to have a conversation with, with the crossover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know it was like, you know, maybe the Midwest kid could be the one to consent. You can't have two <laughs> players in the backcourt going crazy. What what was it like being Barron's roommate? Man, Barron and I met in Nike camp when we were 16 years old and we we're on the same team and we had this this explosion of synergy the first time we took the court. And uh we was complete opposites. Barron talked the entire time in practice and you know, I was quiet trying to figure it all out. And Barry will always ask me why I'm not talking. I'm like, because the coach is talking. <laughs> like, that's why I'm not talking. Like, dude, I'm trying to focus. And it's like we always just balanced each other. And as roommates going into – and I moved with his grandmother in late spring of my senior year. And I got – we graduated early in the Midwest, like early May. And I moved the next week with his grandmother and lived with him and his grandmother and his sister in South Central. And then we were roommates our freshman year in college, and um, it was love. It's like true, bro. And to this day, we are the very close. We can say things to each other no one else can, and then we can have the biggest fights with each other like no one else can. And that was exactly our entire relationship, whether it was in the game and we were arguing in practice, and we were like trying to, you know, Lab never put us on the same team in practice. We would dominate. So he would put us on opposite teams and break up the teams. And every time he did that, Barry and I would almost fight and square up to where they had to break us up. And then we would go take showers and, you know, be the best twin brothers possible, ready to go get some food and go to study hall. And then we'd get in the dorm room and then we'd start playing video games. And depending on who's winning or losing, we start throwing the controllers at each other's face. Like, you cheating, and like, I'm not cheating, you cheating, and controllers would be flying everywhere, so we had to separate our rooms. So I took my bed, and I put it, I turned the front room into my bedroom, and let him stay in the bedroom, and we had two other roommates who shared a room who just thought we were just crazy. Like, we, we just couldn't be in the same space, because everything became highly competitive to the point where we would blow up at each other, be about to fight, and then go on double dates together like nothing ever happened. It's funny. I, I want to get to your NBA stuff, but Noah, I, I got to tell you, I saw Earl, when I saw Earl recently, he's in incredible shape. I figured he worked out like that morning. I had met Baron. We were in a green room together a couple of years ago, and I was asking him if he's still thinking about playing, and he's eating, I want to say Chinese food. And his, the food, 
was like on a plate that was sitting on his gut. And oh, he was he was eating the Chinese food and he's sitting there and he goes, yeah, you know, I'm considering it. And I just remember <laughs> it being one of the most talented basketball players I had ever seen. And I'm thinking, you know what? I bet he could. I bet he still could if if he wanted uh, it. Ben, so ben could definitely pull it off. Oh. He could definitely pull it off if he wanted to. He was just that talented and, and gifted. It was I said all the time, to me, he's the best point guard to ever come out of UCLA. I don't know Russ is unique and he has the statistics, mm-hmm. but Barron had the combination of everything from natural point guard, IQ, explosion, quickness, strength, and ability, playmaking ability, and he is electric, where Russ is more literally, he was like thunder. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yes. <laughs> literally thunder, where Barron is just, he ele- electrifies the entire arena. Earl, where were you on on your draft night? I was in Kansas City in the neighborhood I grew up on my draft night. Um, it was all a new process to me, man. I was very Midwest when I got to L.A. in 97 and very still kind of cord, you know, tied to, you know, Kansas, even on 2001 when I left UCLA to enter the draft. So it was all so new to me. My agent at the time was Bob Myers, who is now the GM of the Golden State Warriors. And I think I actually got drafted during a commercial. <laughs> so, like, Bob actually <laughs> called, you know, the house phone to tell me, hey, you just got drafted. Like, oh, I think it's a commercial, bro. Like, I appreciate it a couple later, I guess. All right, so then, all right, so then rookie year, you're in Seattle with Gary Payton. How quickly did he start talking trash? Uh, First time he walked into the gym, he was – he was, I told him all the time, I said, you just being an asshole that day. Like, we're close today. He's like my big brother. But I was like, that day, you was a true asshole. Um, I remember <laughs> he was playing pickup, and he walks into the gym, and he has on overalls, which I thought that was extremely <laughs> unique, being that he's from Oakland. And so we're playing pickup, and he interrupts the pickup game. He starts yelling and screaming. I'm bringing the ball up the court. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And I've always idolized Gary Payton because I love defense. Barron was so offensively gifted, I needed to do something extremely opposite in order to have an identity on my team, right, in college. So defense was my thing, which is, I'm assuming that's probably why I'm number one in steals in UCLA history. So GP stops the pickup game, and he looks at me. He goes, you know, what the hell do you see? I'm like, what do I see? He's like, yeah. I go, what am I supposed to see? I don't know. What am I supposed to see? He goes, your teammate's tired. I go, yeah, we've been playing for like two hours. He goes, call a damn timeout. I said, and pick up? He's like, yeah, call a timeout and pick up. Timeout, motherfuckers, pick up. I'm like, timeout? I'm like, I've never, who the hell calls a timeout and pick up? I'm going to play pick up for this point with Magic Johnson, right, Kiki Vanderway. Kobe Bryant, Shaquille O'Neal, Chris Weber, Kevin Garnett, uh, Joe Smith, Baron Davis, Chauncey Billups, Kenny Smith. Uh, just the list can go on of NBA greats. And you want me to call a pickup? I mean, a timeout and pickup? So, like, okay, whatever, timeout. And that was like our introduction. Well, what, would happen, what would happen if you'd called timeout in, in one of the UCLA runs? Man, Magic Johnson would have sent me home. Magic Johnson <laughs> didn't let me play for one week because Why? when he walked into the gym, I was because when he walked into the gym, 
I was sitting down and not working on my game. So he called me over. He's like, come here. And I, and I ran over. I was like, what's up? What's up, Magic? He was like, you can't play this week. I was like, why? He said, because I should never walk into a gym and see you sitting down. Every time I walk into this gym, you better be working on your game. And you better come the rest of this week and work on your game before we play pickup and after. And then next week, we'll see how it goes, and I'll let you play. What other lessons did you learn from Magic? Simplicity with a little bit of pizzazz at the end is always better than too much. So less is more. And, you know, identity, um, commitment, preparation, uh, constantly working on your game, constantly seeing the bigger vision. One thing he told me is you never slow down for your team when you push the ball. If you push the ball and you're faster than your teammates, if they know you're going to pass it, they will run faster than, than, than the speed of your dribble. If they don't think you will pass it, then they'll jog behind because they know you ain't passing it anyway. So always make your teammates better and play your role to the fullest of your potential, even if it's limited. Because I will always be on his team. He will always put me on his team. Mm. So let's stay with Lakers greats and and we can even tie it into Kobe since we've heard so much from Jerry West, who drafted Kobe, then Jerry West traded for you in Memphis. What, what was it? What's it like being wanted by Jerry West? Um, it, it wasn't a trade. Man. Let me tell you how this, this is the craziest thing ever. It was back then, second round picks got nine guaranteed deals, and it was only a one-year deal. So Gilbert was also a second round pick with me, which is why Gilbert got his money quickly. It became the greatest thing possible if you was a second-round pick to just get the one non-guaranteed and then get your money quickly. Right. And it was so many players being drafted in the second round, getting their money, that the NBA now signs second-round picks to three- or four-year deals. They was like, we're paying these guys too quick. It's not the best thing for us financially. So I met Jerry West at campus in the office at UCLA probably my third week. And we developed a quick relationship of he just took a liking to me immediately. He would come to all the games, talk to our team, always give me extra advice and just love the way I play. And I just knew I was going to the Lakers. And when I got into the draft, I think it might have been his last year or he had just retired or stepped away and they didn't take me. After my first year in Seattle, my rookie year, he eventually became the GM or president, I believe GM of the Memphis Grizzlies, which also at that time had Chuck Daly. So it was like this legendary basketball front office. I'm sitting in the office, you know, Bob Myers is my GM, uh, my, my agent, I'm sorry. Bob Myers is the GM of Golden State now, it was my agent. Aaron Tellum was the main agent of my agency, which eventually became now Wasserman and Tellum stepped away. Bob obviously left. I'm sitting in the office talking to Aaron. As I'm sitting there, Jerry West walks in. He just took the job, right? And I was about to get my contract faxed over for, you know, from Seattle for a new contract. So I was about to send it over. I guess back then it was no email, right? You got to fax it. So mm-hmm. we were going to see what the numbers was going to be. No one had a clue. It was coming over. And somehow it came over like an hour late. I don't know if this was purposely or it was like just you know the universe speaking jerry walks into the office sits down and starts talking about the grizzlies to me and Aaron. and we're like listening i'm like yeah you know it was good to have you in the league again like it'd be great 
And then he looks at me and be like, you should play for me. I said, huh? He's like, you should play for me. And I was like, um, I should play for you? He was like, yeah. I was like, are you going to offer me a contract? Or what are we doing here? Like, because I got something coming I'm about to sign. Like, you know, so, you know, I'm on a one-year deal. Like, I'm trying to figure this out. And literally, he offered me a deal in that meeting, which I obviously verbally committed to. I never looked at what Seattle offered me because we had had a previous relationship. And that was my tie into Memphis with Jerry West, who eventually hired Hubie Brown. That is nuts. Well, the Hubie Brown part of this, Earl, I know he's one of your all-time favorite people, never mind coaches. You guys start that first season in Memphis, 0-8 under Sidney Lowe, and then Hubie takes over. The difference between Hubie Brown and Sidney Lowe right away was what? I just think experience. You know, and it's it's not a knock on, on, on Sid. Coach Sid is just Hubie was Hubie, and his demeanor was completely different. And there's no coach that I can say that's similar to Hubie. And I play for, you know, at least two more Hall of Fame coaches, which would be George Carl and Jerry Sloan. You know, so I wouldn't say any of those are the same. Hubie um, walk. Jerry West introduced Hubie. I'm 22 years old. We're in Memphis, losing franchise. First time in my life I've ever been a part of anything that was losing as far as team. So it's all new to me. Just everything was like new to me. I never, I, it made me, it almost made me sick. And the change happens. In comes Jerry West. He introduces Hubie Brown, and I'm thinking, I got to call Bob because we just hired the TNT guy. This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know his full resume, right? <laughs> so here he comes, you know. I love them on TV, but here he comes. And so I was really green. I was really Kansas, right? So here he comes, and the first thing he says to us is, <laughs> it wasn't, though, I'm glad to be here. I look forward to working with you. He takes the podium and he says, you know, Jerry West introduced Coach Hubie Brown. He gives a story about he's going to be great for us. We're going to win and, you know, blah, blah, blah. He goes, first, I would like to say, you all are fucking losers. <laughs> None of you are winners. If you was a winner, the other guy wouldn't be packing his stuff with his family, see? You got on fire. You're fucking losers. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner. I'm going to teach you how to be a winner. And he put out this list of, like, just culture. And he was like, when you get done playing for me, all of you are going to learn to play for another NBA coach. All of you are going to have a chance to play 10 plus years. And if you don't learn, I failed you, but I will not fail you. And if you don't do it, you failed yourself. He goes, 10 of you are going to love me. Two of you are going to hate me. And for the two of you that's going to hate me, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, you'd be proud. He was like, practice in 30 minutes. <laughs> And that was the introduction to the greatest coach and basketball teacher I've ever had in my life. 
did you walk out of there all sorts of motivated? I, no, I called Bob. I was immature. I called Bob and told him I wanted to be traded because we just got the meanest fucking coach ever in the history of the basketball. <laughs> and Bob was, like, <laughs> Bob was like, you're not getting traded. Relax. He's going to be the best thing to ever happen for you. Jerry loves him. Didn't really work out for Drew Gooden, though. Didn't work out for Drew. Drew Drew ended up somewhere real quick. But that that just that's just how UB was, man. Like, it was... He set the bar, and if you chose to go beneath it, you had to be moved immediately. And that's that's the difference between winning franchises and losing franchises. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing in family structure. Winning franchises, this is what you do. If you don't do your job professionally with high character and integrity, you will get traded tomorrow. Losing franchises, this is what we do. And if you don't do your job as the coach demands, you can go talk to a GM, he'll fix it. You can go talk to an owner, he'll fix it, and he'll figure out how to get rid of the coach. And that is the biggest difference in winning and losing in the NBA. All right, so then staying on that, I mean, a, a winning culture, a winning coach, you were part, later in your career, you were part of the Utah Jazz when, when Jerry Sloan got fired. Jerry Sloan was extremely unique. Um, similar to Hubie, Jerry Sloan and Pop practice is no longer than an hour 20. If it's an hour 30, that is a long day. Younger coaches in the NBA want to go 215, 2, 230. It's too long. Hubie practices, it quickly went to 45 minutes to 60. Anything after February was only 45 minutes. Jerry Sloan was very short. The stretching was about 10, 12 minutes. And practice, including stretching total, was maybe an hour 10, hour 15. Jerry Sloan gets on the phone with me as a free agent. He goes, "Um, I don't handle money. Don't ever talk money. I'm happy to have you to be a part of our team. You know, as the, he has the deep voice, right? And I go, thank you, coach. Uh, I just want to say I'm happy to click. And he hung up on me. That's all he said. <laughs> and I'm talking to like, you know, and I'm like, yo, what the hell happened to Jerry Slow? Man, a few words, do what you're supposed to do. Shut up, do your job and get out. I do have questions about Hubie Brown because you've talked about how he breaks the game down in terms of points and segments it out and then the other thing that I hadn't heard before about any coach ever doing at any level that there are no private conversations with Hubie Brown so could you speak to both those things the no private conversations with Hubie Brown is the same thing I carried over into coaching in Phoenix that's the only way I feel like you know, it really worked for me in the NBA. So what Hubie Brown would do is, beginning of practice, he would put everyone in a circle. And if he wanted to get on you for the night before, he would say it in front of everyone. But the beginning of every season, he would also put you in a circle or sit you down in the film room or the locker room and go player by player, what your role is going to be, how much time you're going to play, how many shots you're going to get. And this is the only thing you can do offensively. And for me, it was, 
transition layups, corner threes. If the ball touched the paint and come back out, I could shoot the three. But before I could shoot, I had to get the ball to Pagasov. For Bonzi Wells, it was being a six-man-of-the-year candidate. He was going to average anywhere from 18 to 24. He was going to give starters minutes off the bench. In late-game situation, he was going to be our closer. For Shane Battier, it was corner threes and defending the best, the guys of the best man. For Mike Miller, it was pick and roll, any three, and also X amount of shots. And he went down the list. For Dante Jones, he said, you're not going to play. You're going to work your ass off. You're going to shut the fuck up. You're going to be a professional. And if somebody makes a mistake, you're going to take their fucking position. And I'm going to give you 10 games to do it. If you can't do it in 10, you'll lose it back. So when he left there, we were never confused. We were never in the game thinking when we were getting the game. We never, you know, worried about our minutes fluctuating. Our minutes are our minutes, good or bad. You got to play through it, and you're going to get your full minutes no matter what. So what he would do is he would write before the game, the board would be full of information. And he would write on there the time you check in in the first half and the time you check out in substitution pattern in the third quarter. In the fourth quarter, he left kind of open. You earn fourth quarter minutes throughout the game on how you play. So you can't just think your minutes are guaranteed in the fourth because they're not. They're competed for within what we do. Offensively, he wrote Vertical actions, this is going to be a vertical game. This is going to be a horizontal game. If there was a vertical and horizontal plays, vertical meaning like high pick and roll, all offensive win north-south, I'll call it rim to rim, baseline to baseline. Horizontal was offense that went from sideline to sideline. DHOs, dribble handoffs to DHO, a side pick and rolls or any offense, a DHO to a side pick and roll to a post possession. That was all horizontal. And he would write down the play calls that we have for that game. And we knew them because we practiced them in drills the day before. And at halftime, he would come in, and every time out, he would get your deflections. How many deflections? We got six. We needed seven a quarter. We got to pick it up. We got to pick it up. <laughs> we couldn't score in the half court because we were so young. Tago Soul wasn't a low post scorer. So we needed to get blocks, steals, deflections, rebounds, so we can play vertical action in transition. We needed a vertical game in transition. We needed, you know, a four to six threes in transition. We need points in the paint in transition. I think our number was 35 transitional points per game. Defensively, we had to hold teams to 24 points or less, and we needed the deflections to do it. So he would be like, point guards, you pick up full and you turn them twice in the backcourt. And Earl, you got six foul to use. You better at least use four to five every game. So I just be out there just literally fucking people up. Like, okay, I got four to five <laughs> fouls to lose. <laughs> Ruff is not going to call a foul every time. He's going to call two, but you call three in a row on me, the crowd is going to mob you. It's not going to work. They never stopped the game that much. So I was just being overly aggressive. And we had all these numbers we had to hit. And, you know, we had even numbers of – we had to win three out of five home games. We won four out of five. He called that a plus one. And every number just meant something to the point where we he broke the game down so good when he took over the year he took over. We obviously didn't win that many games. But we had lost 24 games by the end of that season by four points or less. And so he sent us off into the summer believing – 
that we can just change two possessions, we can make the playoffs, and we did. He got us to believe, and that reflected back to Coach Wooden's talks with me when Coach Wooden would say belief is stronger than reality. And that's just, that's life, man. Belief is stronger than reality. Whatever your reality is, if you just have that strength of belief, it will change your entire perception and your entire execution on what's next, even in dark moments. So I carry that mentality with me to Phoenix. I take over as an intern, interim in Phoenix. We have Markeith Morris, who wanted to be traded in 10 days. Ownership wanted to trade him. I put everyone into the theater. I gave everyone their role. The minutes I was going to play the shop, you know, attempts per game. And I told Markeith last, you're going to be our starter. You're going to be our closer. You're going to be our leader. And I know you don't want to be here. Hmm. Selfishly, I want you here. But you are going to average 20 points, 10 rebounds, and six assists because I know you can do it. And he's a great mid-post scorer. I said, and because you don't want to be here, and this is for an entire team, I said, I'm going to help you get to where you want to be. And if you ever want to change your mind throughout this next 12 days, please let me know and I will fight for you in the front office. And he looked at me in disbelief because coaches don't have those conversations. And everyone left the film room and he walked up to me and his words to me directly was like, coach, I fuck with you. I was like, mm. and I fuck with you too. Let's go hoop. <laughs> and he averaged, I think he averaged like 22 or 24, like 12 or 13 rebounds and like eight assists. And we flipped that, that trade into a lottery pick, I believe, to, to the Wizards. But the day he was traded, and it was very, you know, it was, it was turmoil between he and ownership. It was bad. And the day he was traded, he sat in the middle of practice, because it happened during practice, and we gave him a hug and, you know, just told him, like, you know, he, he's free, like, he, he got traded. And he sat there for 20 minutes and didn't want to leave. And the thing he said to me is, I never had a coach be honest with me like you, and I wish things were different. You know, I wish I had you earlier. And that was it. We had no prior relationship. We never talked. And it was like I never I never knew him until I actually took over and I intimately engaged in him because he wasn't my player to engage with. And it was so much turmoil, you didn't want to get involved. And that was Hubie Brown's, you know, teachings and Hubie Brown disciple where professionals are pros. They don't want to be lied to. They don't want to be led astray or, you know, told you're not going to get traded or not told the truth. They want the truth. If you give them the truth, they will give you your heart. If you give them the truth, they will give you your profession. They will give you their professionalism. If you give them the truth, they will run through a wall for you. And I learned that with Hubie. If you don't give them the truth, players will talk in the locker room. They won't play hard. They just string along and be like, man, I need somebody who can coach me. I do, I do whatever I want to do. And then come and hug you on the court. So you got to be honest and have tough conversations in front of everyone. So there is no gossip in the locker room. They can't say you said anything because everyone heard it. And that's how I learned how to coach. So is that what you want to do next? Coach again? 
I mean, coaching, co- coaching to me is, is, is like art, man. Like, you know, some, I just feel like you were just either, I, I've always felt like I was a coach, like my whole career, just being in Indy with, with Roy Hibbert and uh, Larry Bird was the GM front office. Frank Vogel was an assistant and I knew Frank was going to be great. You can just tell Roy was struggling. So I said, look, I took Roy aside. I said, look, man, let me help you. Um, offensively, you're standing right here. You need to get below that baseline. Work that short dunker because I can get the ball to the middle if you get out the way. And if you, if I get the ball to the middle, you're so tall, I'm going to hit you with a pocket pass, bounce pass, or a lob to the rim. And offensively, just sprint your ass rim to rim, turn in front of the rim, in front of the goal, post up in the middle of the paint, direct pass. If I come off a pick and roll, get to the elbow, get ready to take the shot. So I learned spots on the court, elbow, elbow, dunker, dunker, which Hubie Brown calls midpoint, midpoint, corner three, corner three, wing, wing. Those are the only spots where we were allowed to shoot in Memphis, and our offense only was designed for those shots. Anything in the paint is free. Floater, layup, dunk, two feet in the paint, shoot whatever shot you want. But outside of paint, those are the only spots. So I try to put Roy in those spots. So if I drive to the midpoint, you got you, you to gotta pop to the elbow, right? If I drive to the elbow, you got to pop to the midpoint. Basketball is all cause and effect. Everything creates a triangle to the rim. So let's create these triangles. And Roy was so intelligent enough to pick up on it. I think it was maybe the next year or the year after he became an all-star. And I feel like, that breakthrough and explanation that I learned from Hubie that I carry with me my entire career just led over to me eventually retiring and coaching immediately. In addition to being a a coach that's in your blood, storytelling's in your blood as well. So we appreciate that, Earl. Um, Lamarcus Aldridge, you were involved in in the in the pitch to uh, to get Lamarcus Aldridge. How did that go down? Um, I retired in my first year. Um, the Spurs said they had a job for me in the G League, but they only paid me ten to twelve thousand a year. Um, I had another job, which was you know being a basketball analyst immediately, would obviously paid more immediately, which paid more. And then a guy that I gotten close with owned four hundred companies, and he ran a hedge fund. He wanted me to help me run his company, and then it was always to try to play again, which I didn't want to do. So I took the job in the G League. Um, it was amazing because it was with the Spurs and I wanted to learn how to be a champion immediately. That was why I sought out Jerry West as a player. Like to be a champion was always the most important thing for me. That was always number one on my list. So I took that job. Um, and that's how I ended up with the pitch with Marcus Aldridge. The details of the pitch for me was to never, was to never pursue basketball the pitch for me was to pursue you know the the intimacy of his family the intimacy of the things that meant the most to lamarcus and basketball was never the most important thing lamarcus most important thing was always family if you can intimate family if you can intimate uh structure you can intimate if, if, if you can like intimately create that and combine that with basketball you're going to have a better chance of landing him as a free agent because he could have stayed in Portland and made more money, but some things are priceless until the markets what made it priceless was the fact that, you know, 
he could, you know, be a part of something bigger than himself, which was the Spurs. I want to jump all over the place here as we as we start to wrap things up. You were with KD as a rookie. You were with Russ as a rookie, of course, KD in Seattle, then Russ in Oklahoma City when the team moved. Is Kevin Durant misunderstood? Uh, it, it depends on what you think Kevin Durant is. Like to me, KD is 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 I'm never misunderstood. KD, like, what is your perception of KD? Does the say misunderstood? I, I would I would say, do most basketball fans misunderstand KD as someone who takes things too personally, took the easy way out, doesn't understand why he's being criticized for the choices he's made in the league? Let me tell you a story about KD. It's our rookie year. And um, KD tells me his whole life he wanted to go to UCLA, and I was livid. I go, <laughs> what do you mean you you wanted to go to UCLA? They didn't, they didn't recruit you? He said, no. I was like, what the f- <laughs> What the hell are we doing? <laughs> He's like, man, I used to stay up late at night just watching you and Baron Davis and Jerron Rush. I'm like, what? Oh, like, are you kidding me right now? I'm like, KD could have been a Bruin. So we immediately connected. So before practice, after, well, mainly after practice, I was like, like, what do you do, man? Like, how's the NBA treating you? And he's like, man, after practice, I go home and I just play video games with the kids in my neighborhood. I'm like, what? You are a superstar. Like, it was because of the next coming of LeBron, right? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe that he was, he has so much humility that he engaged in the kids who were similar to his age or close to his age in his neighborhood just playing video games in Seattle. So that immediately let me know the heart of Kevin Durant. Katie is one of the best, and I think if he wasn't hurt this year, he would be the best basketball player in the world. He studies the game. He's committed to his craft. He has a big heart, and he wants to be in the best environment for his balance of, you know, um, respect, mentorship, purposeful um, elevation, meaning where is this going? Are we getting better? Are guys being held accountable? And can someone like the coaching staff or the GM have tough conversations about how to play the right way? And so when Katie, in my opinion, left, he felt like the lines of communication to make the team better, whether it was through personnel or even correcting his game or correcting Russ's game, in my opinion, he felt like it didn't exist. And that's why he wanted to go somewhere else where, in his mind, they were already playing the right way. And those conversations were organic within the team. And that floor was open for communication. So, so, so when I think of KD being quote unquote sensitive, I think KD just engages with fan base, good or bad, which I think is great for basketball. If I could tweet KD like, "Hey man, you suck," and he retweet me back, I just have forty five, or "You suck." You think the person <laughs> receiving that tweet is really upset, or you think they celebrating that? Tweet? No, I don't know. They're like screenshot, right? Celebrating, and they sending it to all their friends. It's great for basketball. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we could tweet Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen in the '90s when they were oh, on their run. Right. Like, oh my God, dude, I just tweeted Scottie and he responded. He's authentic, and I love it. Uh, we just lost to me 
a debatable greatest of all time player to ever play. And we wish we had more. If you look at Twitter right now and Instagram, you're seeing all these Kobe Bryant videos flooding social media. We can't get enough of them. Him with his family, him scoring baskets, him with his kids, him coaching the teams, his special bond he had with his his kids and especially Gigi. Like, tweet, KD. Like, respond, tweet, DU, because when it's over, the whole universe is going to miss you. And it's always over as a player and eventually we transition as spirit. So be you, be big, be yourself, and continue to be great. We're going to wrap this up, but I just have one more question, and then we always end with our, our rejecting the screen question. So last question for you real quick, and that is the night you mentioned it earlier in the podcast, Devin Booker goes for 70. I know you guys had a special bond, and and you and – Suns management butted heads even over Devin Booker starting over over Brandon Knight. The night he went for 70, why why was it so important for you that he keep going and keep going and keep going and keep keep reaching higher and higher scoring numbers that night? I didn't know he had even close to 70 because I coached the game, not points. It was in the fourth quarter and the crowd kept cheering for us and a timeout was called. And I looked at my assistant, Nate Bjorken, who is now the assistant of the Toronto Raptors. Just won a championship. And he's one of my the closest friends I have in the NBA is coaching. And I said, Coach, what are they cheering for? He goes, Coach, Devin Booker has 65. I said, no shit. <laughs> I didn't even know. So a reporter after the game was like, was you trying to get him 70? I'm like, no, we had just beat Boston on – never giving up, continue to press, continue to fight. And we kept cutting the game in Phoenix. And Tyler Eulis, Tyler Eulis picked up a loose ball and made a three at the buzzer to win. So you never know what could happen. And another teaching of Hubie Brown is you never stop playing. You cut the score to as minimum as possible. Because if you don't do well that season, you can put up all the points where you lost by six or less four or less, seven or less, and get them to believe three more possessions, you know, three less turnovers, two more rebounds, we could have won half these games. And when they start believing, you become a playoff team the following season. So I was trying to cut the score. So to be an asshole, a reporter asked me, you know, was he trying to get him 70? And I was like, no, it's about letting the kids be great. But I also responded, like, to another reporter, I wasn't trying to give him 70. I was trying to get into overtime and give him 80. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't – and for me, you know, a lot of coaches hated that. I don't care. I don't come into any gym as a coach or any arena as a coach looking to make sure I be very cordial and friendly with the other coaches. I still have the players' mentality where we're coming in here to win – we don't care. There's no personal feelings on the court of, you know, where you feel sorry for someone or I want to be respectful. I don't care about that. It's one thing I care about is competing at my highest, making sure the players get better, making sure win or lose, we have belief. And the last thing is making you not want to play us ever again. And that's across the board. And maybe my competitive nature is too high and too much fire but I will never change that because if I did, I would have never played 
13 years in the NBA. Right, quickly, Earl, we'll wrap with this. We always do. It's rejecting the screen. So the final question of every podcast is the one guy that you played with on any level that you would want to reject the screen and go ISO at the end of the game to get you a bucket. Who is it? At any level, the one guy I play with, uh, I would say to make sure I get a bucket, it would be uh, my best friend, Kevin Robinson. He He's a terrible basketball player. But if, if it was NBA, it would have to be Baron Davis because we like to brag about games and we are so com- competitive, you know, highly competitive that one game I shot at three and he low-key, like, jabbed me in, in, in my in my growing area and like hit me in literally in the nuts and the next exact play i tackled him the referees had to like separate us and we both almost got got kicked out of a game and we didn't speak for a year so just to hit a game winner on him <laughs> so he can make it a year and three days would have been perfect <laughs> wait oh so you would hit the game winner on him i would love to just so we could fight after in the parking lot and then go to church together on Sunday. <laughs> all right but earl we really do appreciate it and best of luck to you on on television nba tp pac 12 network and we hope to see you again on a bench real soon if that's what you want to do and and we can't thank you enough for your perspective on on kobe i appreciate it guys thanks as always adam whenever we go iso the long form on thursdays there's so much that is left on the cutting room floor Oh yeah, I didn't. I didn't get to ask him about Danny Fortson. I don't know why I was told to ask him about Danny Fortson, but I really wanted to know. And then also, Ray Allen's cycling club was another one. So as we Ooh. always say, next time we get him on, then then we'll ask more of those questions. We but have to, questions, to, yeah. But to start with Kobe, I thought he was so sincere and showed us more about Kobe than I had heard over the past day or so. Yeah, it, it's weird because you think at this point, everyone has said everything. I mean, there's the legendary Kobe stories, and then there's some of the other stories you and I have been privy to. There's stuff you and I have spoken about, our personal experiences. Obviously, we've gone through that on, on our own podcast. So I, I thought there was almost nothing that I, I hadn't heard. And to, so to hear some of that stuff uh, as they played in some of those legendary runs together, and then just who Kobe was as a mentor. And what he meant to guys and certainly guys like Devin Booker and all that. It's one thing when people talk about it. You know, you hear a lot of people now and they want to talk gracefully about people who have passed away. But when you know that was real, that the mentoring that he was doing to guys in the league, it wasn't just that he was the guy they all looked up to. It was what he taught them about the game and about life that's that's going to be everlasting. That's right. Again, you can go back and listen to previous episodes of rejecting the screen the going iso editions every thursday they're all pretty much evergreen so not really time stamped and even this one sure time stamp with kobe and and his daughter gianna's passing but these types of stories will live on forever robert sacre was last week kobe's former teammate and as we discussed on our tuesday episode it's just eerie that he'd only tweeted two other times since retweeting your post with the robert sacre interview and the story about the uppercut that Kobe gave him to test his manhood. He had retweeted Allen Iverson's Players Tribune piece, and then the original tweet was praising LeBron James for passing him on the all-time scoring list for third place. As we record this with Earl, that's on Monday. 
you'll be listening to this on Thursday. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. Make sure you're checking out everything else that's on the Locked On NBA channel. There's your team every day, so all 30 teams every single day as a podcast. Locked On NBA. There's Hollinger and Duncan with John Hollinger and Nate Duncan. That comes out every Monday. And Locked On Fantasy Hoops with Josh Lloyd. Adam, thanks, pal. You're the best, buddy.